welcome to AIJ Cast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. On this episode, part two of our conversation with Alonzo Johnson. Alonzo is a pastor, musician, and is the coordinator of the Presbyterian Committee on the Self-Development of People. A quick word about this episode. Alonzo and I end up talking a lot about music, and usually we would end up adding a little music bed to emphasize the point we're making. However, the reality is that Alonzo has an encyclopedic knowledge of music, and so instead we have created a Spotify playlist inspired by the music mentioned in this podcast. We have supplemented the playlist that we created alongside episode one last week. And there's a link to that playlist in the show notes and on our website. Alonzo joined us from his home in Louisville, Kentucky. So you talked about playing music in high school. You guys were getting together and playing a variety of genres. Mm -hmm. You're playing drums, you're playing bass, you're playing guitar. In this band, I play drums. It was, you know, I was heavily influenced by folks like Billy Cobham, Tony Williams, uh, Neil Peart. So uh, bombastic, loud, powerful drums. Elvin Jones. I had a friend of mine that was, um, I would watch him play yeah. in these various bands. Greg Sundell, who now writes for Modern Drummer Magazine. And so he got me excited about drumming and about playing and about the dynamics of playing. And so I was, you know, so I was a drummer. I was, you know, I played in a band and, you know, this band was very Miles Davis-like, 70s period, really experimental avant, a horn player and a bass player, my two friends. And we, you know, so when I went to Louisville, I'd, you know, I'd had drum chops, you know, and, and John Paul said, well, since you got drum chops, you should try, you know, I want to teach you some stuff on this, on djembe. And so I started playing djembe when kids didn't show up. So eventually I started playing African drum. And is music part of what you're doing at NUMA, or is it more of a kind of a, a purely ministerial role, a mentoring role? You know, Martha, it's an interesting question that you ask, because I think when I had gone to seminary, I think there was an aspect of me that was like, okay, now I'm going to seminary. Yeah. I'm going to be holy. And in being holy, you know, maybe some of these pursuits may not right. be good. But, you know, but no reality, Neil Peart there. Yeah, no Neil Peart there. This will be, uh, you know, Heifer Doyle. And this will be all the, <laughs> you know, this ideology that, like, this music wasn't going to come with me. Right? Yeah. I mean, I've been steeped on um, black music, uh, church music, punk music, heavy metal, hip hop. I mean, my mom hated my music. You know, what it's is like other playlist? than church music, you were just self-selecting for the music that would be most noxious to parents, yeah. it sounds like. Well, absolutely. It was like, <laughs> you know, um, I just remember mom going, you know, wow, why? You know, I didn't raise you this way. It's like <laughs> I'm listening to Public Enemy and then Slayer, Dead Kennedys, you know, and my mom's like, what? You know, she'd, <laughs> she could not. But I remember when I was in college. And I had come home, and this is when CDs first came out. So you know, this is we're dating ourselves. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. CDs yeah. Had just come out, and I bought a CD player from Victor at work. Right? He was like, "Man, I got one for you. You know, you like them; they sound great." So I need to buy two CDs. I had that's the only money I had from from work that time. I says I can afford two CDs to play in the CD player. So I've got to find two CDs that got a lot of noise and sound and a lot of ambiance. And so the two CDs I bought, my first two CDs, one was. Um, John Coltrane's uh, Love Supreme. Yes. And yes. the other was uh, King Crimson's Lark's Tongues and Aspic. Because I figured you got to have something with noises and clangs and clanks in it, right? I bought these two things. I played John Coltrane and my mom came in and said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was just like, you know, I saw James Brown when I was a kid. 
my dad let me have access yeah. to uh, his record player. And there was one album I listened to every day. I don't know what it was about this album. I would run home from school, living in Newark. Man, I couldn't be more than like 10 or 11 to go and play What's Going On from Marvin Gaye. Oh, man. There was something about that record. I get it now. It's a concept album yeah, when you listen to yeah, it. Yeah, and it's, yeah, you know, and yeah. there's a whole great history around that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And my mom found out, okay, this is the way I can get him to do dishes and, and clean his room is if I take the record. Because one time oh. she took the record and I was just like, oh, my God, you just... You, <laughs> I'll paint the house. Just please give me this record back. And so my dad let me have access to his, his record collection. It was, you know, it was Mom's Mabley. It was Otis Redding. My dad was older. Yeah. So there was no Parliament Funkadelic in my dad's collection. My dad was uh, was Otis Redding. He was soul singers. That Motown golden era, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was Hammond players. I mean, yeah. I remember like Jimmy Smith. Hard bop jazz, you know. My dad was uh, Cannonball Adderley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember Grover Washington Jr. albums, all the Kudu, the stuff that was on um, CTI Jazz Record, you know, that label. Uh, Idris Muhammad. My dad was that kind of guy. So right? uh, here's here's what's interesting to me. Uh, you and I have very different backgrounds, and yet we both have this moment of uh, as broad music appreciators of coming to this this moment of well i guess i have to put that stuff away yeah and for me it was i went to a very mainline fairly open i wouldn't call it, quite call it progressive but presbyterian church mm. here in atlanta but we had a youth minister who was you got to be born again you got to be saved kind yeah. of you know fire and brimstone kind of stuff and they would bring in guest speakers to tell us that the music we were listening to was devil worship and we were these smart, snotty, rich private school kids who were not having in, nobody was going to tell us what to do about anything, let alone you couldn't listen That's to right. Jimi Hendrix anymore. Forget that. That's right. And yet there was this moment where it was like, okay, I can't quite put these things together. So I'm going to put these things over in a box. I'm going to listen to Soundgarden. I'm going to listen to Public Enemy. And they're yeah. not quite in the sphere of the seminary stuff, but I'm still yeah. a fan. And so I'm listening to you talking about growing up in this kind of, you know, this holistic sense. And also, like, I mean, Coltrane's Love Supreme, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Almost anything that came out of that late 60s, early 70s Motown having this double-edged meaning of people lifting up through civil rights, but also a, a sexual liberation. And then the third layer is yeah. a, of a spiritual liberation. Mm -hmm. So there was within black music already this more holistic sense. That's right. I'm I'm wondering if that moment for you of coming to Louisville and being like, now I'm going to be a minister and I'm going to you know listen to pipe organ music only, was that segmentation that boxing off of this other great music? How much do you do you think that was tied up in? race ah that's, this notion of you're going to be moving into a, a, a predominantly white space yeah that's a that's a great question i listened to some radical stuff a lot of political stuff you know there were political heavy metal bands yeah there were political punk game bands you know again yeah. dead kennedys yeah and the political uh hip-hop there was public enemy there was uh you know poor righteous teachers i think a lot of it was not so much of respectability politics in the sense that i have to be this shined off thing right because I was never that, right? Yeah, I mean, I was yeah. always kind of a rebel in that way. Because, and the music was really a, an integral part of that. A lot of it was, I don't know how this stuff is going to fit theologically. Okay. 
So when I read Tillich, when I read Cohn, when I read these neo-orthodoxy existentialist theologians, that stuff just got absorbed. I mean, I began to see the connections. I think I was never the kid that burned my records. Yeah, yeah, Mm -mm, yeah. Absolutely not. I studied my records. And one thing about Vaughn, we go back to the youth group in Hillside. Vaughn let us listen to a lot of this stuff. We listen to Slayer. We listen to Venom. We listen to Metallica. We listen to all this stuff, this really heavy, this heavy stuff. Yeah. And we'd have conversations about it. Yeah. And one of the things that Rev would always say is that, you know, um, have dialogue with this music. Why do you like it? And we talked about real evil. And this was really powerful. Mm. This is why I didn't burn my records. This is why Black Sabbath records didn't get burned. Because the real evil, we started to realize, was oppression. Wow. Not some devil drawn on an album cover or not some satanic panic, which I would love to write a book about satanic yeah, yeah, yeah. panic the, music All the suicide solution stuff and oh, the back masking yeah. and everything, yeah. Right. You know, Ozzy Osbourne was always like, look, I, I believe in God. You know, there's that great line in that Sabbath song, I, I tell you to love, but you choose hate. So we started to see that in all this music, whether it be Marvin Gaye, uh, you know, Stevie Wonder, you know, Songs in the Key of Life, the Bible yeah. growing up in my house and um, Aretha Franklin. Uh, Mavis Staples was always my favorite. There was something about Mavis Staples' voice. If I can have any voice, it would be hers. I don't know why. I just think Mavis Staples is amazing. And I remember listening to that and she would cut through the record. But it was that pain of like what it means to be black and racist America and to deal with these existential issues and connecting those things. So with the heavy metal stuff, it wasn't hairband stuff. This was stuff that was politically concerned. They were likening Satanism to nuclear war, yeah. uh, to disease. There were bands that were talking about post-apocalyptic times. Yeah. And we were tapped into this because this is what we were beginning to see. Breakdown of society, crime, racism, all this kind of stuff. A lot of it, too, is that, you know, rock and, 70s rock and roll, whether it be Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, I was a big Hendrix fan as well. Sure. I mean, you can't be yeah, black yeah, love yeah. rock and then not be connected to Jim, Jimmy yeah. Hendrix and Eddie Hazel from Funkadelic yeah, and yeah, the yeah. Isley Brothers. I mean, yeah, these were yeah. and, and in Santana, yes. you know, as yeah. well. This music was really concerned about the future. And this is the 80s. I think this is, you know, the threat of nuclear war. We were, yeah. we're still living in the Cold War. Yeah. The, the film The Day After had come out. I remember being horrified after watching The Day After. Every bird I saw in the sky, I thought it was a nuclear weapon. Mm. You know, and now as we live in a time of pandemic, I think about AIDS. This is mm-hmm. when AIDS had just come out. You couldn't mm-hmm. touch a toilet seat. And then the whole, you know, racializing and genderizing of AIDS, you know, AIDS being a gay disease. Yeah. Sexualizing of it. You know, so a lot of this music, was really pointing this out. Hip hop mm. was pointing this out. Yeah, Metal was pointing this out. Punk was pointing yeah. this out. Even some really conscious R&B at the time was really pointing this out. And looking at music as that key to having conversations about how do we come together as people? And not in some idealistic sense, but to be real about changing the politics in this world. Public Enemy, it was the samples alone. Uh, samples of Farrakhan speaking. These samples that would make you go and do the research. You know, where does this come from? These concepts that Chuck D is bringing up. Poor righteous teachers, all these folks who are connected to things like Nation of Islam. Yeah. Remember, I'm from Newark, New Jersey. We had a temple in Newark. I had family members in the nation. Yeah. I knew that world. 
Yeah. You know, I used to read the final call as a kid. I yeah. knew that world. And, you know, say what you want about all that stuff. But there was always this kind of consciousness about the apocalyptic age and about, mm -hmm. you know, what Paul, Apostle Paul, would call the present evil age. Mm -hmm. And all that music embodied that. It pointed to that. Nuclear war, violence, police control. If you didn't hear it in rap, you heard it in punk yeah, and yeah. hardcore music. And so that stuff was really formative in a sense that it was a voice for those of us who felt voiceless. And it was the energy around music. Music is energy. Yeah. Right? I mean, it just is. Go to church. Growing up in a black church, music is energy. Somebody, uh, I just came across this quote thanks to a friend. It is the role of the artist to make the revolution irresistible. Yes. That's Tony Cade, Cambarayu. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is the role of the artist to make the revolution irresistible. When we talk about the apocalypse, when we talk about the the opening up of, we're talking about a new world being created in which is just and equitable. Yeah. Right. And the I mean that's the 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 classic language, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And right. artists can touch that in a way. And so you're bringing all this in and having these really nuanced conversations in high school about this music. And yet, even with all that, it's not until reading Neo-Orthodoxy and James Cone that you begin to re-embrace yeah. that stuff. And start to look at, yeah, absolutely. When I first read James Cone, I was home. Yeah. You know, I was theologically home. Tillich and Cone. Yeah. Tillich, Cone, and I would say um, Dolores Williams, Katie Cannon. Mm-hmm. Renita Weems, mm -hmm. of course, as a black male, what I was able to do with womanist and black theology is to start to contextualize it and start to see myself in that theology. Mm. Tillich and Bart were bridge builders. I know this sounds really corny, but sometimes there's things you read and you just go, I felt this my entire life. Yeah, uh, yeah. Systematic Theology from Tillich was one of those books. When we were done reading, I was like, okay, I always kind of thought this and never knew how to put this into words. Same as James Cone. It was like, wow, thank you for this, because I always thought this. I always thought Cone talks in spirituals and the blues. He talks about the juke joints yeah, yeah. where black folks could go because yeah. they could not be themselves and they could not express the great spirituality and power that black people have inherited from the motherland. And, and, and so they had juke joints, places where they could you know, honor music, honor art in their bodies. This was powerful to me made me think about my youth and young people and how the church had become that for young people. So for me, when I was working with young people, uh, both in Numa and also in Oak Lane in Philadelphia, when we were doing creative arts ministries there, that was the impetus for me. Hmm. And so how does the church become juke joints for young people who are not able to express the kinds of powerful and positive things from a culture that exploits and also abuses them? Hmm. Mm. especially poor young people, particularly mm -hmm. African-American young people, mm -hmm. um, children of color, poor mm. children. And so those kind of things were really at the forefront for me. So those theologies were really powerful. I remember reading that stuff, things like Bultmann, reading this stuff and going, wow, this is powerful. It just opened me up. Reinhold Niebuhr, mm -hmm. um, Kelly Brown Douglas, Emily Towns, voices that have been around, but had not heard in, in the circles, theological circles. Sure. I loved my pastor, but those things were not on, on yeah. his shelf. Yeah. Some of those things were not on his shelf. 
It was hearing uh, womanist theology, black theology, uh, mujerista theology, feminist theology. You know, when I first read Ruther, sexism and God talk, uh, it was like, wow, listen yeah. to the, the voices of theology coming from these contexts that are really powerful and redemptive. And that's how I was able to really kind of re-embrace this music that was on the fringe. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, it, to me, uh, what you're talking about is a theology that is highly contextual, Yes. which I would say is kind of the essence of incarnation, which is yes. at the heart of classic neo-Orthodox Christian doctrine. That's right. The intellectual challenge for me was trying to figure out, I came to, I had kind of a theological crush on Karl Barth in seminary, and Barth fell along that line, that kind of reformed theologian line yeah. that said, if it's not in the Bible, it's not okay. Right. As opposed to the more kind of Lutheran vision, which was, if the Bible doesn't forbid it, it's okay. okay. That's right. And what we're talking about with this this music is really more that second one. Yeah. It's it, it, the Bible as this kind of textbook of life, which I, I feel like the Bardian kind of double-edged sword is that it can lead to these more kind of highly contextual guy who was writing all about what was happening in Nazi Germany, very highly contextual, and then taking that into civil rights theology in the United States. That's right. Uh, but the other side, I think Bart also leads to kind of the purity culture that says that the Bible is a book and guide on dating and sexuality. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Because <laughs> it's and, everything, right? I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, this is, I loved learning Bart yeah. because it was, you know, neo-orthodoxy. It was, yeah, you know, yeah. looking at Christ through this different lens, this, this very high Christology, but this human responsibility dimension to things. Alonzo Johnson on AIJ Cast. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment, but first a quick word. We are doing our best to keep our calendar up to date with adjustments made because of COVID-19. So please do check our website. And that is where you'll find links to our artists, including their news, events, and products. I am scheduled to preach at Park Avenue Baptist Church on Sunday, July 19th. As things stand right now, that service will probably end up being online, but stay tuned and check our website for more information. And in case you don't know where that information is, it is at AIJCast.com. And now back to more of our conversation with Alonzo Johnson. We pick up that conversation talking more about music and neo-Orthodox theology. What was more attractive to me, though, uh, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bonhoeffer was more attractive because it was about, you know, don't write about it, do it. And I always felt that in Bonhoeffer, in a sense that there is a kind of courage, and not to yeah. say that Bart didn't. I mean, any theologian that's escaping Nazi Germany, I mean, you, you, I mean, one can only imagine. But it was something about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, this idea of being a uh, spoke in the wheel. Uh, you know, what happens when evil comes and it looks like this? And what happens when evil is dressed up as the church? Mm -hmm. What happens when evil is totalitarian and powerful? And um, when I thought about things like, uh, so I'm going to make this connection. In seminary, I was pulled over at gunpoint with a friend of mine uh, by police, a uh, white officer, put the gun right in my face mm -hmm. here in Louisville, Kentucky. I was pretty convinced I was going to die. I remember when he had the gun in my face and it was kind of resting on my temple, I was praying to God and talking to my mother who was then alive and in New Jersey. And I was saying to my mother in my prayer, Ma, I'm sorry. I tried. I really tried. I really wanted mm. to be. Anyway, that ended well, because I'm not dead, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, 
a friend of mine that was in a car, white seminary student, he said, Alonzo, show me your seminary ID and the whole dynamic change. And that's a whole nother rabbit trail story. Yeah. But the connection I'm making to police brutality, police state, I think about uh, what Cone Bonhoeffer were concerned about and also connect that to things like police truck from the dead Kennedys. And be thinking about like, you know, those kinds of things that appeared in, in music that were addressing the issue of police brutality, of lawlessness, self-imposed martial law. Bonhoeffer was a real powerful connection for me because mm. it was standing up against, it was a theology that was being laid out. That's why Barman, my favorite confession, yeah, yeah, yeah. because it was laid out to go against the idolatry of Nazism and to call it out and fight against it. Yeah. And there was something that was really powerful about this to me. And I thought, wow, we're living in a country that is under uh, white supremacy. Mm -hmm. But remember, I'm going into a prison three days a week, and which is 70% African-American, handful of these guys, seventh grade education. Uh, the white guys in the prison are poor. So we see that there's a war on the poor, there's war right. on people of color. Right. And so I'm making these connections and I'm working with these young people who are brilliant, who are living mm -hmm. in situations that are really tough. Uh, going to schools that will not acknowledge their brilliance and being beaten by police, in many cases shot. Theologically, it's people like Bonhoeffer that's like, wow, so this is how you fight. I felt the frustration, Bonhoeffer joining the Abwehr, you know, mm -hmm. trying to mm -hmm. blow up Hitler. Mm -hmm. I, I felt him. Mm -hmm. I mean, that wasn't the way, but you feel him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The frustration yeah. of somebody who's who comes to the States and says, I, I can't live here. You're doing to black people what's happening to Jews in my country. Yeah. So yeah. I was able to connect with Bonhoeffer on that level because it was uh, he was writing in the midst of this. He yeah. was trying to figure out how do we engage this evil monster that unfortunately had the head of Luther on it in some mm -hmm. ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, how do we just stop this machine? To me, that was a direct connection to police brutality in this country, yeah. Yeah. slavery, mm -hmm. oppression, uh, especially mass incarceration. You know, it was a step in, in the final solution plan of Hitler, identification, incarceration, extermination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that's who I was able to really connect with. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Alonzo, tell me about your work now with self-development of people. Self-development of people, it is incredibly powerful and it's redemptive work. It's tough work. It's anti-poverty. Self-Development of People is a powerful ministry that's been part of this church since 1970. SDOP is the brainchild of Gayrod Wilmore. Of course, we've just lost the great Reverend Dr. Gayrod Wilmore. And not too long ago, we had a great uh, webinar with uh, Reverend Dr. Oscar McLeod talking about the Black Manifesto and how that had shaped and created the self-development of people a concept and, and the ministry. It's a ministry that is engaged. It's a ministry of a bunch of Presbyterian folk that are really concerned about access, but they're also really concerned about paternalism. And they're concerned about the fact that communities of color did not have access to power. Hmm. And they were concerned about white supremacy, what we would call white supremacy now. They were concerned about those particular oppressive elements preventing people from developing and then penalizing the very people when they were not able to do the kinds of things based on uh, this oppression. So self-development of people is a ministry of uh, walking alongside communities who own and control uh, and are the direct beneficiaries who recognize that they have the power, that they are standing up and saying, hey, we acknowledge our power and we acknowledge the importance of having a voice and having access. Hmm. A group called Alianza Agricola in Rochester, New York, one of the members penned this incredible article in the New York Times. Mm. Isn't my life important as a farmer? 
as an undocumented worker. Aren't I important in this COVID-19 time? So part of SDOP is walking alongside communities, actually learning from those communities about poverty. One of the powerful things about self-development of people is the diversity of communities that we have funded. Hmm. Everything from undocumented workers and farmers to uh, there's a Somali women's group that we have funded, the uh, Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Down in Florida. Yeah, in Florida. The Damayan workers in New York City who are Filipino women who've escaped uh, labor trafficking and who are advocating for themselves. There's the Black Women's Blueprint in New York. There's the incredible water warriors of We the People of Detroit. Monica Lewis-Patrick and incredible people doing amazing work there fighting for the water. They fought for clean water and just, uh, you know, water business practices uh, in Detroit and also Flint. Mm -hmm. So the great Monica Patrick Lewis and Deborah Taylor, amazing people doing incredible work in Detroit. Mm -hmm. First Nations groups who are doing uh, agricultural work. Folks like Epoca, they're in Massachusetts addressing the issues of mass incarceration. And these are ex-offenders who've come back into the society and are fighting for the right to vote and fighting for the right to address the issues that ex-offenders are, are facing. Yeah. Uh, lack of housing, lack of health care, lack of uh, employment. Mm-hmm. So groups like Epoca out of Massachusetts, another group called Jobs Not Jails out of uh, Massachusetts. And so we've walked alongside these organizations. They've taught us much about uh, what does it mean to address poverty? And they teach the church, how do we make relationships with those who are doing incredible work and how do we learn? And I think that's one of the powerful things about this work, SDOP, is that we have been able to learn from communities themselves about how to address the issues. So uh, so self-development of people have been a great vehicle to uh, doing anti-poverty work, engaging the church in the hands-on work. So a lot of our model, it's hands-on. Our incredible national committee, they are a group of folks that are broken down into four different uh, task forces, you know, in the different regions, uh, north, south, uh, midwest, and west. And they go out to communities. Uh, they meet communities. We do community workshops. They get to uh, meet leaders in the communities and all these kinds of things. They get the church involved. And we fund organizations that are doing the incredible work. Radio Unalera in the West Coast, incredible organization. I went out there uh, last summer to meet with them. And basically, it's a day laborers organization uh, looking out for day laborers, undocumented. And also, it's a radio station Mm. uh, where they basically, this is what happens to you if you are taken advantage of as an undocumented worker. Here's the rights you have. Public service announcements on the radio. If you are experiencing unemployment, here's the kinds of things you need to do. Come Mm. down to the center. Mm. And they have been working on PSAs to help people. If you are attacked because of who you are. This is where you need to go. Here's a number you need to call. Mm. So look at these organizations that are doing incredible work. And one of the things that we have learned about all these organizations is that relationships matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Relationships matter. I just had conversation with several of our uh, funded partners about COVID-19. And basically what they all said, what we're learning in our communities is that communities matter. Mm. That's who's taking care of, of each other, communities. Yeah. yeah, And the church has a lot to learn about this. I mean, many of our churches are doing incredible things. Sure. But I think one of the rewarding things about self-development of people is that we're learning from these organizations about how do we actually get involved in these issues and how do mm-hmm. we connect and make those really important relationships that will you know, benefit communities and benefit the church and teach us how to live that Matthew 25 piece. Uh, in addressing uh, poverty and the intersections of poverty, racism, 
To me, it's been learning uh, and it's making those relationships, recognizing what's at stake and being able to translate that theologically to the church, you know, and many folks who come to our churches who are part of these communities. Yeah. You know, what's at stake? One of the programs of self-development of people is the One Great Hour of Sharing. Could you just give us a little bit of information about that program? Absolutely. One Great Hour of Sharing. So for churches that give the One Great Hour of Sharing, uh, the Presbyterian Committee on the Self-Development of People, we received uh, 32% of your giving. So it's split between three incredible ministries. One, of course, is the great PDA. who is Presbyterian Disaster Assistance. Uh, Yeah, Presbyterian Disaster Assistance. You see, when you work in the building, I got to remember not to... (laughs) <laughs> it's just Use alphabet all the acronyms. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, so an SDOP, self-development of people, and then also the Presbyterian Hunger Program. We're doing incredible work in addressing issues of food deserts and, and food security. So we are sister programs that work together. And so, you know, when you give the One Great Hour Sharing, you are extending your reach of hope into communities. 36% goes to um, the Hunger Program, and that extra percentage is to address issues of uh, homelessness. After disasters, especially right now in COVID-19, the work of these three programs, we are engaging in communities. This is definitely a plug to special offerings and the great work they do and the great work of my sister ministries. But I am really happy at the work that our denomination is doing. I feel really incredibly honored to be working for our denomination and the work in all of our ministry areas are doing incredible work I, I want people to understand that uh, Louisville's doing great work, and I'm happy to be a part of that. And One Great Hour Sharing is a really integral part of that work. Well, and I, I, to me, I hear the connected tissue here in everything that we've talked about, even the dead Kennedys, yeah. uh, in the sense of what you're talking about is highly contextualized. Yes, absolutely. It's dealing with issues. It's seeing the abuse and maybe power itself as the real face of evil, as opposed to some kind of cartoonish guy on a, a can of deviled ham. That's right. Or on the back of a mega death record. That's right. And also this notion of, yeah, this very highly contextual understanding of where is evil at work and where can goodness be at work to combat that evil. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. That's a through line in your life from everything I've heard you talk about. Yeah. And seeing uh, the, you know, the symbology, how do we move beyond satanic panic yeah. and look critically at the evil, the satanism that's in racism, uh, that's in sexism, that's in classism? How do we look at the evils of policies that do not support people right. uh, and that support greed? I heard it in this music. I heard it in, in Marvin Gaye. I heard it in the Dead Kennedys. I heard it in Black Sabbath. I've heard it in Aretha Franklin. I heard it in Public Enemy. I heard it in Kendrick Lamar, in African music like Fela Kuti, yeah. Miriam uh, Makeba. Makeba, you know, yeah, yeah, Yuku Masakela, South African musicians, King Sonny Day. I mean, the the music. There is a voice, yeah, that comes through in so many different ways. I hear it in Stravinsky, you know. I hear it in uh, Rachmaninoff, yeah. You know, I, I hear it. You know, what what does it mean to be in the island of the dead? And that points to nihilism. Mm, uh, mm-hmm, what does it mean mm-hmm. to be in a time where, you know, security guard gets shot at uh, Family Dollar because he's told someone to wear a mask yeah. and the senseless uh, violence uh, of mass incarceration and police brutality, 
and racism and all kinds of isms yeah, yeah. that we're facing, right? Well, I hope that you will uh, join in this fight against Starbucks saying happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs> it's the culture war is yeah. so, I mean, it's so surface and it's so um, artificial. It's deterring people from the real issues. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's, it's, it's the fact. It's yeah. good red meat. Yeah, that's right. The fact of matter that there are young people that don't have access to school. You know, I'm looking at Detroit. Diane Ravitch, it's incredible books on education says you know the two aspects of the problems of public schools: concentrated poverty and concentrated uh, racism. Yeah. You know, if we can spend energy fighting on a Starbucks cup. And that energy of uh, being worried about paganism and still in the clouds of satanic panic, yeah. we will never really truly get to the issues at hand that are real uh, when children struggle or hungry uh, or climate change, the evils of destroying the, the very earth that was given to us. Uh, something N.T. Wright says, and mm. uh, surprised by hope, and I'm going to paraphrase this. I don't want N.T. Wright to come after me. <laughs> he mentions, it says, you know, God didn't create the world so God can destroy it. Because we messed it up, you know, that God created the world and called it good. Yeah. And an understanding as we look at farmers, you know, my mother taught me very early on not to pollute because this was God's world. And, and God's world is the world of beauty. It's part of the whole God plan. Hmm. It is this world that feeds us. And so to punish it and abuse it, I mean, we look at evil in so many different dimensions to people, to the world, how systems uh, yeah. are destroying the quality of life for people. And that's evil. That's yeah, Satanism. Yeah. It's, as a Scottish theologian friend of mine puts it, he says, the work of God is to create and the work of evil is to destroy. That's right. Always to kill, steal, and destroy. And I think that says it right there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Lonzo, if you had a charge for people who are listening, it could be a word of wisdom you go to regularly, or maybe it's something that this conversation mm. has sparked. What would it be? Mm. Especially right now in the midst of COVID-19, there's that great Psalm, Psalm 46.1 has been one of the most powerful Psalms in my life. It is that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in all trouble. And I think about that with COVID-19. Uh, what does it mean for God to be our refuge in a sense of the church being a virtual church and still doing God's will? What does it mean to be God being our refuge in a time of confusion, of fear, of panic, of worry, a time of ignorance and, and hate, a time of hubris in a time of a pandemic, which is scaring us? And, and that's the thing. There was uh, some article, I think it might have been in T. Wright as well, that said, you know, uh, this church is not supposed to answer these questions about the coronavirus. It really does remind me of the plague from Camus. This is existential stuff we're living in. Mm. But where do we find God? And how is, where are the places of refuge uh, that we find? The places that people who are starving and, and trying to figure out how they're going to get food and they can't shelter in place. What are the places of refuge for them? Uh, what about the kids that don't have the technology? I mean, I have the blessing of being able to take care of my kid and have her finish off school, my 14-year-old, with computers and all the technologies she needs. But right. what about those kids who will no longer eat in some of our states because they're not going to school yeah. and they don't have the technology? So what, where are the places of God's refuge uh, for those who are you know, are facing major mental health crisis in a pandemic 
Those who are being abused at home, shelter in place means domestic violence and living domestic violence, shelter in place is horrifying. So what does it mean to have God's refuge? And that's going to look different contextually, but that sticks with me. God is our refuge and our strength. And how do we as the church live that out for those who are struggling? Uh, how do we live it out virtually? I think the incarnational, incarnational peace, peace yeah. especially of neo-orthodoxy, that incarnational peace, especially that comes out of uh, feminism, womanism, black theology, that incarnational peace that's so powerful. And how do we live as people of God's strength, taking care of one another, taking care of our kids, our neighbors, taking care of those who, who are really struggling and being mindful of that, of how do we seek our sister and brother in a time like this. One of our uh, organizations in this recent conversation we had about COVID-19, she said, you know, I'm tired of this term, the new normal. It was never normal before. And it's never normal to see people suffer. It's never normal to see communities bereft of hope. It's never normal to see homeless people uh, have with nowhere to go. It's never normal to see people losing their jobs and not being paid a fair wage. It's never normal to see people being sex trafficked. It's never normal to see people destroying the earth. It's never normal to see people uh, being abused. Uh, it's never normal for people to spend time in jail for crimes they did not commit. It's never normal for people to be shot dead in the street by the people that we uh, depend on to protect us. It's never normal to accept racism, white supremacy, and white nationalism as an okay and absolutely acceptable political ideology. It's not okay. This, that was not normal to begin with. And so how do we even talk about new normal when the old normal was unbearable for people? It's never normal when Native Americans are continued, land is still continued to be taken from them. Folks who are unapologetic about racist uh, uh, logos and the treatment of First Nation people, the treatment of undocumented workers and their kids, this is, this is never normal. None of these things are normal. So how does God become our refuge and our strength in standing up and fighting with? It's not normal for Asian Americans to be treated as if they had something to do with this disease, to go back to these old racist tropes of a uh, yellow peril. You know, it's never normal to make uh, racism an acceptable ideology and to target groups of people. And so these are the kinds of things, you know, uh, for me, being rooted in God's strength so that we can have strength to hope, like King says, strength to love, and that we can be uh, the refuge that God calls us to be for folks. So that's what I'm feeling these days in quarantine. Alonzo Johnson, thanks for being on AIJCast. Uh, thank you, Martin. Thank you very much. It's an honor. It's an honor. Alonzo Johnson on AIJCast. You can find out more about the Self-Development of People program and make a donation to it on their website, presbyterianmission.org S-D-O-P. On our next episode multi-instrumentalist and renaissance man, Sam Yen Bata. AIJ Cast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. We are able to continue doing this work because of your support. So please do take just a moment and go to our website, AIJCast.com and click on the link that says support. And we also love to interact with you on social media. We are there on a number of platforms where our handle is AIJCast. By the way, we're going to be releasing a really cool collaboration through our Instagram platform where our handle, like the others, is AIJCast. So please do follow us there and we'll keep you up to date. Our theme song is written and recorded by the band Marge Fame. Photography support comes from the fantastic Ely at ELEYphoto.com. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the always out 
algebraic Al-Mudif. Al is confident that an episode is ready for release when he can say this about it. I know this sounds really corny. And I'm your host, Martha M. Sanders, encouraging you to go, rather stay put, and create some beauty of your own. Peace.